Hello, my father. Uh, hi, Ernie. How are you, Mom? Doing better. I had a cold the last couple of days, but I'm yeah. mostly recovered, I think. Hopefully, I'll be well enough to go to Monterey tomorrow. Okay. Good. Uh, uh, how about Anjali? Did she get in? Uh, get into what? Oh, the tennis thing. Uh, she doesn't. Uh, she doesn't know yet. So I think she, they <laughs> will probably okay. find out. They usually find out these things like Sunday night or Monday morning. Okay. I'm still not even clear what yeah, she's getting she... into. They're doing auditions and then they're going to practice and then that's it. Yeah, you know the audition. Nobody's watching her. She said. <laughs> well, so yeah, I don't know how yeah. Gonna... yeah. So it's very strange, but. Yeah. At least she did it, and she, and she has enough confidence to believe she did better than most of the people. So, whatever okay, it is, good, it'll good. be. Yeah. Okay. Now this huh. is going to be a little different kind of book review, right? I mean, yeah, that was one of the things. Like the first call, we'll just uh, do it. So anyway, this is Titan, the book by Ram Chernow, the life of Nelson D. Rockefeller, or no, John D. Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller. I don't know where I got Nelson from. Anyway. So, yeah, the dog's doing a little bonus walk. We'll be doing this later than usual. Um, but, you know, the backstory is I bought you this book and you were uh, enamored of it, I guess is probably the right word, and wanting to talk about it, even when no one else wanted to talk about it. So I figured, let me create a space <laughs> where we can talk about it. And I've just read the introduction so far. Uh, yeah. I haven't got into it. So I figure we can either, you know, so. Uh, you know, this is for you and this is for us, and this is a chance to do a father and son thing while you're in Illinois this summer. Yeah. So we can do it as structured or unstructured as you want. Right. Um, I'm going to try and read through it. And, and the interesting thing is, but you have, yeah. you have the book, and I just have my memory. So. <laughs> Story of our life, Dad. Uh, <laughs> It's a good thing that I have uh, memory like an elephant. Yeah. So. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, then you know, this before you could share the story. Then when I get to it, I can point out, oh, you know, this is what you said, but what it says here. <laughs> <laughs> you have the book. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But the so, uh, no. the interesting yeah. The reason I but wanted so like, to talk to you about that was. Uh-huh. First of all, you gave me the book. Second of all, uh, just to show you, I mean, first of all, you gave me the books. So I want to show you that I read the book. <laughs> and then the second of all, this was totally different from the view I had of John D. Rockefeller. No, I didn't expect some of the things uh, that I learned about him from the book. Right. And I think I'll, I can please start with is actually reading the introduction. Uh, I right. like what he said is that most like during his time, there was a large number of people who thought he was the devil. Right. And yeah. this caricature of him as a selfless, greedy, money grubbing uh, miser yeah. type of person. Um, yeah. uh, robber Baron. Uh, then there was another group of people who saw him as a saint. Right. Someone who did all this wonderful charitable work, someone who did all these. Uh, you know, incredible market efficiencies, you know, saving the world, uh, bringing life into homes, you know. And was it, I think the author talks about how, like, very few people seemed interested in him as a human being. 
as right. a person with a history and things. And then the other thing, so that, that was very powerful reading that, but also he said that the one thing you must understand about him is that he's an evangelical Baptist, and that is the key to everything else. Yeah. Um, so that was I didn't fascinating. That. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I think that's what makes this story interesting and a good thing for us to talk about is because, yeah. you know, the same issues we talked about in with entrepreneurship and family and God in the um, Round the Bend book, it, this is actually quite similar in some ways. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think this is a, a great thing. And so we can, so I will try and read through a few, you know, one, or, one to three chapters a week or whatever, just to have some context. But then, yeah. you know, whatever's on your mind, whatever you remember, whether or not it's in order, whether or not it actually happened the way you remember it does, it's still interesting right. to hear, you know, what your reactions are and what you think. So right. I'm actually quite excited. Right. Okay. So again, you know, um, one of the things that we can start by saying is, without knowing anything about John Dirac Rockefeller, still... reading the introduction. Mm -hmm. is, like you said, some people thought he was, you know, the devil incarnate, and other people thought, you know, he helped a lot of people and he was a saint. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Luther, he didn't say people were a devil, but he said, you're both a sinner and a saint at the same time. Mm. You're fond of saying that. And, you know, we also say nobody's perfect, right? Uh -huh. Everybody has good qualities. Everybody has bad qualities. And I used to quote this. I don't know whether I quoted it to you. One of the surprising things to me when I looked at the movie The Godfather, mm. The Godfather was a family man. <laughs> he loved his children, his son, and he loved his grandchildren. He played with them, yeah. and he loved them. So even, uh, and, and I think uh, you will come about this in a little bit later in, in John D. Rockefeller too. Was it just compartmentalization? People can separate their job or their, what they think that uh, they have to do with their personal life? This may be a question for us to answer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that was interesting. That makes me think about the, the most intriguing mm. part of the introduction to me mm. is where he's listening to the audio tapes of the guy who was interviewing Rockefeller about his life. Right. Mm. And one thing that, that struck me, he said that for most of the interview, especially at the beginning, Rockefeller uh, worked very hard to maintain a good Christian image. Like of being terrible towards his enemies, admitting his own faults or whatever. But mm. over time, uh, when you get to certain, like he, I think he said there were only two times when Rockefeller lost his temper or kind of mm. uh, broke script. And mm. one, I think, was when this uh, lady who wrote sort of a critical biography. Oh, yeah. Ida. Ida Turbo? Yeah. Um, mm. She made some comments about his father. Right. And then that just set him off. Mm. And, you know, the thing that that made me feel was a deep compassion for Rockefeller. Uh, mm. You know, once I got past sort of the, the because 
he had a faith that I think was very real and very strong, right? right? And I think he genuinely needed to believe that he was always doing the right thing for the right reasons. Right. And yet, the practical world we live in means that sometimes you do the right thing for the wrong reasons or the wrong thing for the right reasons. Right. And sometimes it's not clear which is which. Right. And that cognitive dissonance is insanely difficult to deal with. And that's why we compartmentalize, right? That's why he always chooses, you know, Steve Jobs was famous for this. Uh, So one of the things that was about Steve Jobs is that, Mm. you know, he he liked surrounding himself with people who were as smart as, or not smarter than he was. And he liked to argue with them, okay? And, you know, Mm. anybody at Apple could go up to Steve Jobs and tell him, I think you're wrong and here's why. And if you had actually done your homework and thought things through, he would respect you. And if you were yeah. just blowing smoke, you, you would just get incinerated on the spot. Uh, so, uh, it, but the thing was is that, um, so his inner circle, the people who were his friends, he trusted, they would argue with him all the time. And the biggest one was um, when the iPod was successful, yeah. uh, it only ran on the Mac, or there was only native support for running the iPod against MacBooks, because Steve Jobs mm. was in the mentality that, well, we are a computer company, we sell Macs, iPods should be a way to get more people to buy Macs. Mm. And his, um, uh, his uh, time course basically, you know, badgered him for months, you know, like, no, this is a key strategic change in how Apple functions, we need to do this. And mm. he finally gave in, and uh, the, mm. the poster announcing it was labeled, Hell Freezes Over, when Apple announced formal support for iPod <laughs> on Windows. I and of see. course, this was a critical step that enabled Apple to become the iPhone company and the most valuable company in the world. Oh, really? Oh, that was yeah, a turning point, because, huh? Because then, well, we are a device company, not a computer company. Ah, okay. Right? And so that was what, so that. the iPhone, and the iPhone works fine on Windows, right? So back in the day, you had to pair your phone with your computer. Hmm. Okay. If you listen to this in the future, you'll be amazed. At, oh, you don't remember what computers and phones are. But anyway, the, the reason mm. I tell that story, anyway, but this is the dynamic of Steve. But one of the funny things is that most people hate to admit that they were wrong. Especially, especially when they're in a job. Yeah. 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 Especially, especially when they're in a are, job. Yeah. yeah. Which requires okay. you to be confident and sure yeah. and other people yeah. trusting you. Yeah. And so this was the strange voodoo mind magic that Steve Jobs would do. I had people who worked with him tell me about this. Is that you would argue with Steve about something and he would like refuse to, you know, he would refuse to listen to you. And then one day he'd come up and say, okay, I've decided this is what we're going to do. And he would adopt the position that you had been telling him for, that he would argue against, and he would never admit or even appear to realize that he had changed his mind. He would just Whoa. erase the fact that he had held it, right? which is like incredibly annoying if mm. you are, uh, you know, one of the people working on the But on the other hand, it's so much better than him getting stuck defending him being right because he was afraid of the feeling of having been wrong, which a lot of people end up in. And so this was the price. 
that this was the, the, the compartmentalization. He would just like kill the part of himself that disagreed with that and forget it ever existed. So he yeah. was free to adopt that new position. And that was one of the keys to his success, that he could pivot, that he could let people argue him out. But the way he mm. had to do that, you know, given his massive ego, which was large enough to make him even dare to do these things, right. you know, that was the, the, tax, the price that he had to pay to be able to be the alpha male and make that work and still change his mind when necessary. And these See, are all exactly. really hard things. Yeah. See, uh, one of the interesting things about our conversation about John D. Rockefeller is uh, he was a pioneer uh, in the oil industry. And, and in so many other things. Yeah. Uh, your perspective, having worked in Apple, where uh -huh. you worked with a pioneer company, with Steve Jobs, mm. you may identify some of the qualities that Steve Jobs had and some of the uh, um, weaknesses of John D. Rockefeller, you know, he was living in 1898. You have to remember that. And that time, there were no major corporations. Oh, so, yeah. And, 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 and even more than weaknesses, I actually prefer the term mm. trade-off. Because I think mm. there were things that he had to do in mm. order to be able to do what he did. Right. Yeah. And, you know, they, like, you know, they mentioned that like, he basically invented the idea of a millionaire. Yeah. He invented the idea of a founder. Yeah. Right. Is that before that, you tended to have um, these small, you know, uh, family businesses, some of which were very wealthy. Right. Like, you yeah. know, these banking families that have been around for generations, centuries, you know, are the names of Lloyds of London. But the idea, uh, and like he invented the idea of the uh, decentralized or the distributed corporation, yeah. right? The, the, you know, the, these trusts that span state lines. Yeah. Uh, he invented yeah. the idea of standardized products, like, you know, standard oils yeah. in the name. You know, like yeah. there's so many things he invented. And, and then perhaps, you know, most interestingly is that he invented this idea of the entrepreneur turned philanthropist, right? They right. did that you make your, you spend your life making big piles of money and then you spend the rest of your life giving it away. Yeah. Um, and that this, and, and, and it gave people a template to follow and they could agree with it. They could disagree with it, but at least it was there as yeah. a benchmark to look at and say, yeah. Oh yeah, this is what he did. This is how he did it. This is what I like and dislike. And, you know, the, and this is actually very interesting. I wasn't thinking of going here, but like, this is the thing that I feel is um, the challenge. I mean, I'm having this with my father. Uh, I occasionally do podcasts with my son, but I think a lot mm. about what kind of a world will he live in? Mm. What kind of man does he need to be to not just survive and thrive in that world, but to become a role model for others. Right. Uh, you know, as you have been for me, and you know, I hope to be for him. And, you know, the, it's interesting, you know, I live in this entrepreneurial uh, hotspot of Silicon Valley. Right. You know, where everyone wants to be a founder or expects to be a founder yeah. um, or know someone who does. 
And in some ways, you could argue this is sort of the culmination of uh, we, we're all grandchildren of Rockefeller. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We all make some of those same hard choices, those same self-deceptions, those same um, polarizing uh, bold moves that make us a hero to some and a villain to others. Like that yeah. is kind of what it means to be a founder. And this, um, and you know, we're going through this with my startups that I'm currently at uh, and other startups that I've done. Uh, interestingly enough, I just dropped off a call with a group called All America, which huh. uh, is a group trying to, so they're a fascinating story. They, um, they're kind of a collaborative effort between uh, YWAM and Crusade, uh, Campus Crusade or Crew as they call it now. Huh. And, Navigators yeah. and a bunch of yeah. these Christian organizations that work in the U.S. Yeah. and they have a, a three-pronged strategy, as I described it. One is that they're trying to enroll the whole body of Christ in North America, uh, align them around these five finish lines, which is you know having every you know neighborhood in every city and every region where everyone is prayed for regularly, where they're being served with with justice and compassion, where they're being discipled into the Word of God. Uh, where they're gathering together with believers, and I forget what the fifth one is. But, like, they have these five simple metrics, and then they mm. go and they're building this decentralized network of all these different groups uh, in different regions that are saying, okay, we're going to adopt this state or this county or this city, mm. and we're mm. going to all work together with all the churches and ministries in this area to do all of these things for everybody. So it's a very grandiose Boy, that's a tall scheme. <laughs> that's a tall yeah, uh, but what's interesting is that's like the, that's the surface level. That's the, but what's interesting is that the second piece of that is that they do this by really powerful spiritual reconciliation between churches, of bringing together people around Jesus and having them have this sort of this deep relational experience with each other so that they're willing to trust each other and let go of their own agendas and focus on God's kingdom. And mm. remember the reasons that they got into this in the first place, if you will. Um, yeah. But then the third piece of that is in order to kind of keep track of all this and make it all work, they need this massive data layer to like keep track of all this stuff across all these different systems. And so that was the context in which I first started talking to Joel. Actually, second, first I introduced him to some people in the Bay Area, but then mm. he connected me to their um, people working on the tech side. And I have a mentor, a guy named Corey, uh, that I've been meeting with quite regularly. And then this week was my first time meeting with the larger team. There's about a dozen people on a Zoom call for an hour talking about, mm. you know, what needs to be done. And the interesting thing that keeps coming up a lot is this tension of, like, what does the body of Christ need? Mm. And does it need more churches? Does it need platforms? Does it need an app? Like, what is the thing that will help us? And uh, I don't know what the answer is yet. I've got some, some theories that I'm kicking around, but it kind of comes down to it. it it's, it's making me think about this question of, like, one of the challenges we face is that we have a limited set of role models for this, right? Like, we have the yeah. Constantinian church where you had emperors and bishops and priests, you know, in a yeah. hierarchy, right? There's that world. Yeah. You have the secular role models of, do we need another Facebook? Do we need another LinkedIn? Right? Mm, and, yeah. you know, what does that mean? And, like, you know, it's, it's, and this is a challenge, I, it's, it's funny, this comes up a lot. 
uh, for me at least, is I have a ch problem that I have a deep sense it's important and what it means, and even some ideas of what the, the future should look like, but I lack the shared language to explain it to other people, mm. right? And this idea yeah. of creating, and so like Rockefeller created the word millionaire and founder. Mm. Like when you say, like, what do you remember that? Well, look at Rockefeller. This is what he mm -hmm. did. And you give them a concrete example of this thing. If they see that, that, do that, be like that, mm. right? Yeah. And, you know, this is, I guess, the incarnation, right? Does God, you know, gave us a bunch of prophets speaking words, but until yeah. Jesus, the living word showed up, we didn't really know what God looked like. Right. Or we didn't know which right. features were important and which were incidental. Mm. What was essential and what was window dressing or, you know, and was still hard, what is eternal and what was conventional for that culture? Right. And yeah. this yeah, we are watching of, children. Like, so. Oh, yeah. We are, we are watching. Yeah, it, it becomes very evident what you're saying. Yeah. Right. And the thing I love about Chosen is like they deeply incarnate all these conflicts and theological questions into real world challenges. Like one of my favorite scenes is, uh, mm. is there's a character named uh, Little James, you know, not oh, the yeah. brother of John, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who is yeah. crippled. Yeah. And I guess I saw a video that he's actually like had foot surgery. So like in real life, he was actually crippled. I, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't mm. know if it's temporary or permanent or what. Um, yeah. but, but Jesus sends them out to heal, um, yeah. while he's still crippled. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of theological debates in charismatic circles about what, you know, what is healing? Doesn't, doesn't Jesus want to heal everybody? Doesn't Jesus heal everybody? And, but just having that very concrete personal experience, like this is a guy who had an issue, who was with Jesus, and this is what happened. And, yeah, we also you know, like those, yeah, we also like the story, yeah. you know, and that, the, the sense of, and I guess maybe that's really the, the, the lesson from this. Mm. And one of the reasons I guess I do podcasts like this and create the oral history is like, I don't know if I will ever be able to verbalize or articulate mm. an answer that will make sense to people. The best I can hope to do is live a life where I am trying my best to grow closer to Jesus and, and, and document what I'm doing and be vulnerable and transparent and, and humble while still being bold and daring and risk-taking. <laughs> and when people look at that and they say, okay, that's what I mean to be a good man mm. of God in the 21st century is something mm. like that, but better. Right. I mean, I think I told you the uh, proudest moment of my life. I was in uh, Valor, India, at my wife's uh, college reunion, and mm. we were playing. Rowan was probably six years old at the time, and we were playing mm. on the swing. And he grew up, and he looked at me and he said, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to do everything that you do, only better. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I said, I said, I said that's wonderful. Uh, except for one thing, mm. you won't do it alone. Mm. Okay, yeah. Right, because I had no role model. You know, I mean, right. you you, know, right. you barely had any, right? I mean, you were the first generation of our family to come to America. Uh, you grew up right. without a mother. You were figuring out marriage and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, professional. Your father was not a doctor, he was a clerk, right? Yeah. 
Right. I mean, did yeah, you, you know said a lot of things. Uh, yeah. When you're done, I have to make some comments. But, okay, I'll stop now. Uh, finish yeah. what you're doing. Finish, finish what you're no, saying. No, no, no. It's just, it's just that, like, it's hard, right? When you, when you don't have a role model who's faced the challenges you face, you, you have no benchmark. You have no idea to tell what's right and what's wrong, what's sane, what's insane. Uh, you have to make it up as you go along. And Ernie, it's I so mean, we all, we all, yeah. everybody does that, Ernie, uh, because Rockefeller obviously didn't have a role model. We'll, we'll talk about it more and more. And, uh, you know, like I said, my father was not a doctor, so I had to make up things as we go along. I don't think that's a liability, Ernie. I think, you know, that actually uh, it's a stimulant. Right? Hello? Well, I'm letting you talk now, so I'm not interrupting. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. All right, I'll double yeah. think. Uh, first, uh, yeah. let me start with... Uh, couple of things that may not be connected to what we were talking about. Um, I don't know how far you watch Chosen. Uh, I've watched all the way through season three. Season three, uh, we're finishing season three. Um, it's a spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, Peter and Eden lose a babe, uh, lose a child, I mean, uh, right. in, in the womb. So yeah. that comes up big in the last thing. So. And Peter does get very upset. So that's one. So that's why we'll talk about it later. The other thing okay. is, um, mom was asked, you know, the, you are doing the story work. Mm, yeah. Uh, give us your idea of uh, some ideas of uh, raising children. What is your uh, advice about raising children? Uh huh. And she started it out with the same uh, answer, which I probably would have said too. It's difficult to ask us. Because one, we we are two cultures. Yeah. So the the way of raising children in India was totally different than than here. And then um, the other problem is um, our children turned out really well. <laughs> so. <laughs> so. so we we don't take credit for that. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, in spite of us, they became really good. <laughs> so uh, that was how she started out. And then mm -hmm. the other thing is, you know, you cannot really give advice on how to raise children because each child is different. You cannot apply the same formula for mm -hmm. all the children in the whole world, you know? And uh, each household is different. Each background is different. Anyway, that, that's another topic we need to talk about. Uh -huh. And the other thing, um, just uh, like a point of reference, this uh, group that you're talking about, uh, about bringing all the church together and doing those things, Rochelle did that about two years ago, just before COVID, maybe three years ago, four mm. years ago. It was called mm -hmm. Revive Rochelle. Revive Rochelle. Mm -hmm. And there was a pastor, associate pastor in the uh, Presbyterian Church, and he and a couple of other uh, pastors got together and bas basically invited about 10 pastors. And uh, we couldn't include the Catholic Church because they didn't have a uh, priest there mm. who was uh, for all the time. They were coming and going, and they were Hispanic people. 
and they had problems with the immigration and all kinds of stuff. So they, anyway, but make a long story short. So every week, um, all the, the 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 key words was if my people, you know, were called by my name. So mm-hmm. for about ten weeks or something like that, the first week, all the uh, the participating churches will talk about if my people, and the next one will be were called by my name. The next will mm. humble themselves like that. So mm. everybody gave the same. Uh, they all preach their own sermons, but based on the same topic. Mm-hmm. Wow, uh, very cool. Then, then they are very cool, and uh, we even invited all those ten people to our house and gave lunch and and a mm. brainstorming uh, with them and things mm-hmm. like that. And the only female pastor at that time was Pastor Joy from our church, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. it ended up with a. Finally, we had the revival meeting. We had a couple of uh, revival meetings, and the last one was the grand finale. Was at the junior high uh, auditorium. We uh, mm. had a speaker from Kentucky who came and talked about how God was using him. And uh, mm. then they gave communion, which was a very interesting thing because mm. there are nine pastors there giving communion. Each of them have a different view of communion. <laughs> and, and Pastor Joy was one of the people giving communion because a lot of people don't like to take communion from a female pastor. But mm. Rochelle pulled it off. Rochelle pulled it off. Wow. But that was like the high point. And then things didn't work out too well. Uh, yeah. The, uh, uh, for one thing, the pastor, the associate pastor, left uh, the Presbyterian Church. There was some problem, not sexual problem, mm. but anger issue and things like that. Uh, mm. Some of those things. And then the rest of the guys somehow don't talk to Pastor Joy. <laughs> I don't know why. Why they, they don't want to treat me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, so the whole thing is not going forward. So some of that will happen because we are re- dealing with human beings. And some of them, the denominations will put their. Uh, we always remember, Ernie, when we had the Rochelle Crusade in uh, essentials unity and non-essential uh, charity or something like that. In essential unity, in non-essential diversity, in all things mm-hmm. charity. Charity, all things charity. And, but the big question is, what is your essentials, right? So well, actually, you know, some... you, know, you know, what's funny, when mm-hmm. you're saying that, I've always said that myself. I said, you know, actually, I think the hard part mm-hmm. of what charity means or at least the oh, way yeah. we use it now is you give yeah. people stuff for free. It, yeah. it was, I believe, how the King James translated agape. Yeah, love. Right, yeah, God's sort of love. Yeah. Well, yeah. The other thing that struck me, uh, I discovered fairly mm. recently, is that the sort of analogous word to agape from the Greek in Hebrew is the Hebrew word hesed, which yeah. is usually translated as loving kindness. And and the big difference, as far as I understand it, is that agape has sort of a contractual, formal sense that, like, I will do good by you, you know, I I am bound to do good to you, right? So it's unconditional love. Unconditional love, yeah. Right, which is good, except that because of the way it comes across and the way the Greeks tend to operate, 
it's, mm. it's a contractual formal business thing, whereas hesed is much more, um, actually more, it's always like the Greek word storge, which means family affection, which is kind yeah. of like the, less, the least love in the Greek terminology. But yeah. in the Hebrew thinking, that is the way that God feels about us, that he is glad to see us because we are part of his family. Mm. Right. And there's this magical thing that happens when you like, I mean, mm. Joel, the guy who runs all America talks about like the next revival, the previous, God always gives us what we need, but the last revivals were focused on the gifts of the spirit, you know, speaking mm, in yeah. tongues or prophecy, yeah. or, you know, or things like yeah. that. But like the next one will be focused on the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, mm. peace, patience, kindness, yeah. and that it will feel like family. And the thing about family that is hard, literally, is uh, that there is this tension between accepting people as they are and Mm -hmm. helping them become the best version of themselves. That's almost a paradox, right? That's a paradox. Yeah, it feels like a paradox. (laughs) And it is hard. And most churches tend to fall on one side or the other. Mm. And so one could argue the best that you could hope for out of the old paradigm is a Nelson Rockefeller. Mm. (laughs) You know, someone who is striving to become the best version of himself and also striving to conform to the Christian ideals he was raised by. And the only way he was able to pull it off was kind of by lying to himself. Probably. Yeah, we'll talk about that later, yeah. Yeah, it's a hypothesis, uh, and it's interesting how this comes full circle. Is that this is the thing that I want to and, and that I want to learn how to model with and for my son. And I really feel like I'm in an mm-hmm. extraordinary, unique place in history to do this because, like mm-hmm. in the past, when you're in a small town and mm-hmm. you're you're you know you have to be careful of your reputation. If people start right. believing things about you, whether or not they're true, it'll destroy your mm-hmm. life. Yeah. Right, because you have this small fixed pool of people, and there's a lot of positives there because it keeps people sort of on the straight and narrow. But it also means mm. that if you deviate from the norm, people don't know what to do with you, like Rockefeller. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? right. And so right. the opportunity we have now is that because you know, first of all, I come from an enormous privilege, right? Having a a stable family in my generation is a miracle. Having a you know relatively successful parents who are financially secure, so I don't have to worry about taking care of them, having a degree mm-hmm. from Caltech, having the pedigree of Apple, means that yeah. I can get away with being vulnerable in ways mm-hmm. that most people can't. Right. 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 You know, and, mm-hmm. you know, my children, like, I, I realized that, like, for most of human history, you had to teach children to be afraid of certain things in order for them to survive whether that was like, you know, lions and tigers and bears or lords and ladies or the rich and powerful or even of like shameful behavior, like being caught doing something embarrassing, like teaching children to be in mortal terror of those things, Mm. you know, was essential to being a good father, you know, is is to teach them Mm. to fear. And we are in this weird inflection point where for the future my children will face uh, knowing like the things that I wanted them to fear 
like teaching them to fear those things may do them more harm than good. <laughs> you know, mm. because the world is changing. Like, you know, you, when I was growing up, it was still a thing like you get good grades, you get into a college, you get a good job, you work 20, 40 years. Right. right. And, you, and you retire. And therefore, loyalty and following orders and fitting yeah. in was really, really valuable. That started to fall apart in the 80s with the yuppies. And, you know, it's pretty much entirely yeah. dissolved here in Silicon Valley. Right. The, the idea yeah. that someone would work in the same place for 20 years is yeah. like it's like if you're betting your future on working for 20 years, you're insane. You're taking a crazy risk <laughs> thinking that your yeah. company is going to take care. Of, right. Like literally it is considered yeah. like the thing that was considered the normal thing to do is now considered uh, ridiculous. Yeah, ridiculous. You know, it's yeah. like, you, you know, and so like like I, and, and so the whole risk reward profile is inverted and God only knows where it's going to end up. <laughs> Yeah. And, but the opportunity is that like, okay, sitting here on this cusp with, you know, this is my life. I, I have a foot in both worlds, right? I have a foot in the past and the future. I have a foot in India and in America. I have yeah. a, a foot in science and a, 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 in the world of science religion. and technology, innovation, and for the world of religion and faith and tradition. Yeah. And the best I can do, and like mm. the hard thing to do, and I think maybe the right thing to do is if I can make peace with myself, mm. you know, if I can avoid, if I can discover where I have buried pain or where I'm lying to myself, then mm. I can see my son as he walks this road mm. and not uh, be overly triggered <laughs> by the things mm. that I haven't dealt with yeah. so that he is safe becoming who God wants him to be. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, again, like, I can't you know, imagine uh, what that'll be. Yeah. See, one of the sidetracking here, one of the things that um, Andy Stanley said was, some people go, go into the Bible looking for promises. He said you should look for principles. Uh, yeah. I like that he gave examples of it. But the thing is, that's what I think you have to do. I mean, you... Like you said, though the fear and other things, you're training your child. You just give them principles to live by and model it as much as you can, knowing that his world when he's uh, your age is going to be totally different from what you had or what I had. So the principles will always be the same. So, so this is where I, so this so this is the challenge is that. I heard a, a talk someone was giving an educator, I think. So I said, what advice would you give a 16-year-old? He says, the best advice I could give a 16-year-old is mm. be wary of advice older people give you because you don't know and they don't mm. know which are actually eternal truths and which are just currently relevant social conventions. That's the, that's the tragedy of this era. Mm. is, like I said, like the two kinds of statements. The statements that I know, they're absolutely true that I don't understand. Like, God is love, right? I don't yeah. think I comprehend that. And there's things that I comprehend which are not entirely true. <laughs> you know? Mm. And so, like, you know, I, you know these, these maximums and principles, like, like literally, like, in a world where artificial intelligence and bioengineering will probably be the norm during my son's lifetime, I literally have right. no idea what reality he will have. Right. You well, know? I think, you know, we and, can talk about that 
yeah, we can talk about that later because that's because Rockefeller struggled with those things. So yeah. going back, um, so let me just make one, one, one last point, Dad, and let me finish that one point there. Was that? But so the best okay. I can do is to mm. be transparent with him about okay, these are my principles, right? As best I can articulate them. And like he said, you know, it's like, you know, I'm wrong about a lot of things, but two things I will tell you. One is that I've thought very hard about what it is that I believe. And I try to articulate that with, you know, all these manifestos and documents and things like that. And secondly, I do try very hard to adapt my life to conform to those beliefs. And I'm not saying I do it perfectly, but these are two things that I work very hard on. And so that I want my son to see to see the principles and the and even more than the principles, the practices that I live by. Right. So, and see what they're, so that he has a baseline to react against. So this is not like a principle you must follow, but this is a principle that I follow and see how well I follow it yeah. and see right. what happens because of it. And that, yeah. I mean, we love are perfect. You know, most yeah. of the heroes have, have feet of clay. You right. know, maybe Daniel and Joseph are the ones who kind of get off easy as major characters. But every of them all have these massive failures or whatever. And but the thing is, you get to see how they lived, why they lived, where they succeeded, where they failed. And uh, there's this wonderful book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, where the author says, you know, the hard thing about hard things is that when everything goes wrong and the world is in chaos, you have no idea what the right thing to do is. The best mm. you can hope for is to look at people who have gone through similar things in the past, mm. see how they succeeded and failed, and, and mm. draw inspiration from that. And that's, I right. guess, the hope is that the, the, this is what I realized is like, what is the one thing that I want my children to look back on me with? Yeah. And the, the word that came to mind, it's an odd one, was mm. awe. Like the best mm. thing is going to say, okay, my dad was clearly a very messed up human being, but everyone's mm. kind of a messed up human being. Mm. But somehow he worked through it in a way that was admirable and inspiring mm. and challenges mm. me to understand like who is his, who was his God and, mm. you know, why did he think his God was worth it? And if they're in awe of what God did for me and awe of what I did for God, maybe even, then, mm. then they will be encouraged to go on their own quest to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. And they will have hope and comfort and support and, uh, you know, hopefully you know, not as much to unlearn. <laughs> oh, I'm and, sure that's you know, certain things they have. Yeah. Yeah, there will be, there always will be, right? Yeah. But the question is, is you know, there's this unique transition from you came in 1967, right? Which was literally the right. summer of love in the U.S., which is when everything started changing, you know, yeah. the breakdown of the military and the family and all sorts yeah, of yeah. things, you know. And so, um, uh, so actually, you know, technically. I think I'm actually considered, um, um, I mean, I'm on the cusp of the, of the, of the baby boomers and Gen X. Probably. Uh, yeah. yeah, because it was, um, you know, the, 
the, the defining characteristic of Gen X is that it was, they were born after the pill and therefore they're lucky to be alive. Mm. Uh, that, that's how demographers drew the demographers, whatever the word is, how they drew the line. Yeah, then, yeah, anyway. Then you will be Gen X, yeah. Okay, so. Right, I got to wrap uh, up soon. I'll let you finish up whatever you want to say. Yeah, yeah, a couple of things. You know, I mean, uh, this is nothing to do with Rockefeller, but you were talking about that uh, uh, the body of uh, Christ. All America? Oh yeah. Have, have you yeah Have you uh, read uh, John Dialan's book? I'm I'm doing um, yeah. I'm reading it from time to time, almost like uh, my morning devotions. I read his book. It's about mm. the bride of Christ that it's uh, on Ephesians. So then yeah, uh, I've discussed it with him. I, I don't think I, I I may have looked at pieces of. I haven't read it yet. I yeah, should look at my devotions next year. I mean, I mean, he's not. Uh, he's basically you know what should the bride of Christ look like. How does he get prepared mm -hmm. to meet his her bridegroom? Quite well mm -hmm. written. Uh, so mm. uh, I think, uh, but that's not telling these people how to do these things. But what from the Bible, what is uh, expected of a picture? Uh, yeah. How would you get unity and all that? It's very well written. Yeah. And very yeah. practical, not dogmatic at all. So, and the other thing is um, um, going back to Rockefeller. Uh, you haven't read the whole book, so. You mentioned his dad. His mm. dad was a very interesting character, and we'll learn more about him, not only in the first couple of chapters, even in the last chapter of the book, the father shows up. So it'll be interesting to talk about him. So, yeah. uh, so the, in the introduction, did they mention anything about his father except the uh, he got angry when they talked about the father. Oh no, but he was a he was a, a charlatan and a salesman. I mean, it was, was the negative yeah. portrayal of him. And, and just you know, the reason I got this book, and I should put this in mm -hmm. the show notes, is I listened to a podcast about Rockefeller from a founder's uh, podcast called Acquired, a story of technology companies, and they mm -hmm. went back and did the story of Rockefeller because they realized that Rockefeller was the template that all mm -hmm. these other entrepreneurs have followed since then. And yeah. so they quoted even this book Titan like as their source. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Even and, though they didn't so like it at the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And, yeah. and then, you know, the, uh, yeah, and it was a very interesting emotional journey for them, too, about learning about him yeah. and discovering him. And so, uh, okay. yeah. Uh, anything else that uh, from the introduction that uh, you finished the introduction? Yeah, finished the introduction. I'll start on chapter one. Okay. All right. Okay, Mark. Right. You want to pray, Dad? Okay. Close All right. Yeah. Um, God, God, I thank you and praise you for uh, giving us an opportunity, giving me an opportunity to talk to my son. And uh, thank you for all the wisdom that you've given him. And what I'm learning is knowledge is one thing, but wisdom is how to apply the knowledge. So we, I pray that all the knowledge he acquires will be used wisely, not only for his benefit, but uh, not only for the benefit of his son, but also for the benefit of uh, uh, mankind. You have chosen him to be a special person, Lord, we know that. And through our conversation, uh, let us learn more about uh, you. And also with the help of uh, this book, find out uh, what Rockefeller did, what he did right, what he did, didn't do right. And maybe we can apply it to our lives. And especially, I was really impressed by uh, his faith in you. So teach us uh, some other lessons that uh, we can apply in our lives. 
I pray for special blessings upon Ernie in the coming weeks. Till we meet again. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Next week, it's nice if I could do this a little earlier because uh, that way I can walk the dogs yeah. uh, when they want it. Uh, what's your schedule like next Friday? Do you know? Let me quickly check. Uh, I have if not, we can exchange text right. later and figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next week is the uh, well. I have nothing so so far. Okay. So 9 a.m. my time is good. The 11, um, okay. 11, 11. a.m. there. Yeah. Does that work? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll put that as a regular one. We can always speak it if uh, we can always change it. Yeah. yeah. So 11 o'clock my time. All right. Okay, my thank you. Love you. you. Okay. Talk to you soon. Okay, give me a love to mom. Okay, hold on, bye bye. Enough mini over. Oh my, you're feeling better.